pray. Father, as the psalmist said, this indeed is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Last night, Lord, we were reminded that we are dependent beings as we stood and looked out our back doors and watched the rains come. We were reminded, Father, that we could not even grow a garden without you. We are dependent beings, and you are a good God. You are faithful to us. And you have showered over and over again your blessings upon us. Father, we pause and think uh, about the past week we've just experienced and we have mourned with those who have lost the fathers this week. I think, Lord, of Bobby Green and the loss of his father and Lee Griffin and the loss of his dad. And Father, we would lift up these men and their families to you and we would pray that you would raise them up and renew their strength once again, make straight and wide their paths, bring them peace, Father. We thank, Lord, of Sharon Bolton, and we, we uh, hear good news coming from Houston. And Lord, it shouldn't surprise us. We have earnestly prayed for this family, and you have answered our prayers. We continue to lift up the Boltons to you, especially Sharon. And we pray that you would raise her up again and heal her, Father, from her disease. Lord, in all of these things, in loss and in prosperity, we hope that we are learning say from our hearts that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, as we prepare now to enter into the teaching of your word, we would commit this hour to you. And Father, with all the study, with all the preparation, it will be in vain if your Holy Spirit does not reside in our midst today. And I pray that through a humble preaching of your word, men will be changed. We pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you will work among us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You'll receive it tomorrow, in tomorrow's mail. Uh, one of those small group brochures that you've seen so often out in the information booth. Now, uh, if you've read that one, open this one because this is different. We've just used the same front. Open it up because we've placed in that brochure some new information. Some of you won't receive that in the mail because many of you are already currently involved in one of our small groups. What we try to do is send uh, to all of those who are not involved in small groups this mail out. So we hope that you'll get that tomorrow. Which brings me to this, guys. Uh, in the month of September, we'll be starting about seven or eight new small groups. And that's the purpose of this mail out, introducing you to these new small group leaders to give you the month of August to sign up for a new small group. So I encourage you to, to take the time and read that uh, brochure that's coming in the mail this week. And so today we take a little side road, and I want to preach this morning on the subject of the moral test of true faith. The moral test of true faith. 1 John chapter 5. Now before I read the text, let me just give you a few words of introduction here. If we could choose a verse that would summarize the Apostle John's purpose for writing this epistle, it would be 1 John 5.13. There John says, These things have I written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you've ever doubted your salvation, or maybe you're currently doubting your salvation, this sermon 
is for you. These things, John says, I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. If we had the time this morning to read through all five chapters of 1 John, we would see that John develops a twofold purpose in writing this epistle. The first purpose is a corrective purpose. John's writing to the young believers in the churches of Asia Minor to correct false teaching. Apparently, leaders in the church have arisen and begun to teach that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. They were denying the humanity of Christ. And that Jesus, they would teach, is not the Christ. And John says, even now, these false teachers have arisen among you. And he calls them Antichrist. So John writes to ex expose false teaching. And then there's a constructive purpose of this first epistle. John writes to encourage believers who are doubting their salvation. The constructive purpose of 1 John is written to give assurance. There are those in the church, even today, who are falsely afflicted. They're doubting their salvation. And John writes to give assurance to those of us who may be falsely afflicted. We are saved, we are secure, but we don't know it. And then there's another part to this constructive purpose. John also writes not only to give assurance to those falsely afflicted, John is writing this epistle to afflict those who are falsely comforted. For surely, in a church this size, there are people who are lost and don't know it. There are those who think they're saved and they're really not. And John writes to afflict those who are falsely comforted. So we see a corrective purpose to, con to correct false teaching and a constructive purpose. Now John will lay out, at least this is what I see in 1 John, John will lay out three tests of true faith. The first test of true faith is a doctrinal test. You have to understand who Christ is. If you understand who Christ is, it will aid in giving you assurance of salvation. So John is teaching in this epistle that Jesus Christ was both divine and human. Not only was he God, but he was man. And John will teach, if we deny the humanity of Jesus Christ, our redemption is impossible. For we, if we do not believe that God became man, that he took upon himself our own human frailties, the, then the atonement is impossible. And John will use words like this. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is come in the flesh. Jesus is the righteous one. Now I might add here on this doctrinal test of faith, that John doesn't make it easy for us, brothers and sisters. In fact, he begins this epistle with very strong words. John says, That which was from the beginning, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now John is saying, he's reminding us that this message of the gospel, inherent in the person of Jesus Christ, was from the beginning. It precedes creation. It precedes time. It precedes history. Now, here's why he makes it hard for us, brothers and sisters. John is reminding us that Christianity claims exclusivity. It is unique among all other religions of the world. By its very nature, 
Christianity cannot stand alongside the other religions of the world as one of several ways to God. Jesus said he was the way to the Father. So John opens with, with this thunderous volley, that which was from the beginning, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now that, brothers and sisters, is the doctrinal test of true faith. You have to have your Christology right. The other test is a social test. That is, very simply, John says, if any claims to be in the light, yet hates his brother, that man is still in darkness. So the test is, do you love the brothers? It's a test of true faith. And then we come to the moral test, which the sermon is about today. The moral test... It's found in 1 John chapter 5. Now let's read the first five verses of 1 John 5. In fact, this, these five verses give a summary of all three tests. The doctrinal, the social, and the moral. Now John says, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now look across the page to verse 13. I write these things, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. In the early part of the summer, in my own devotional readings, I was reading through the, some of the wisdom literature, and I came across a passage in Proverbs chapter 4, a verse probably many of you know by heart. It's that passage that's written from a parent's perspective, giving wise counsel to children. The writer of Proverbs says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Again, what we see here in this passage, what's revealed to us, is that human conduct, every thought, word, and deed, flows from this spring, this inner spring of a person, from the heart of man, and reveals what kind of person we really are. Jeremiah describes the natural man this way. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now the Bible teaches us that we are born with this disposition, this bent against God. And it's hard to believe, isn't it? Have you ever held a little one in your arms, a newborn baby in your arms, and thought about these words, that the heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure, who can know it? I just recently did that in one of our hospitals, one of our families held their newborn daughter, and we prayed over this baby there in that hospital room. The thoughts came to my mind, how can it be that this young, beautiful baby girl is born with a natural disposition against God? That's what the Bible says. That Christ describes in very plain words the ramifications of this depravity of man. Jesus said these words, For from within, even from that little baby's heart, one day will come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. We're born with this disposition, a bent against God. Now that's the bad news. The good news is that through God's grace and salvation, this hostility toward God is uprooted and God implants within us, His children, a new disposition, a new love for God. One of my favorite passages is in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. I want you to turn there. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. I want you to follow along as I read these words. Ezekiel 36. Now this is the good news. Ezekiel 36. Look in verse 24. This is God speaking to covenant Israel through his prophet Ezekiel. God says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. Now, brothers, sisters, this is, of course, is referring to God taking Israel out of Egypt, bringing them back to their own land, the Promised Land. And when you read of the Promised Land of the Old Testament, you must look forward to because it's symbolic of God's restoration of His covenant people. You see, salvation is not just about heaven. It's not just about escaping hell. At its heart, salvation is about restoration. God says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. When you think of water in the Bible, and the waters of baptism, you think of, or you should be reminded of that the water is symbolic of purification, the washing away of sins. And he says, and I will, uh, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. At the heart of our depravity, is a natural rebellion against God. To substitute in our lives, God substitutes idols. And put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from your heart, listen, I will remove from your heart of stone, I will remove from you your heart of stone, and give you a spirit, or a heart of flesh. Now listen to verse 27, and I will put my spirit in you, and move you to follow my decrees or my commands. Now that's God's promise to us. Not only will He take away the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, but God says that He will move us. Now move us to obey His commands. And we come to the New Testament, and the New Testament reveals to us the nature of this new disposition, this new heart of flesh. Paul, right in 1 Corinthians, he says, now, now these things remain, speaking of God's covenant people, those who have now been changed, who have been given a new disposition, Paul says, these three remain, these three abide in us, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love, Paul says, working together are the basic components of this new disposition we have. Now, here's the point in all of this. The New Testament builds on this imperative foundation, and it teaches us, it presupposes that God gives what He commands. Not only does He call us, but He gives us a new disposition. He moves us to obey His commands. And in the New Testament, we're always addressed as believers in the indicative, as those who love God. I can prove it to you. 
Romans 8.28, one of the favorite passages of many of you. You can quote it. For all things work together for good of those who love God. Again, Paul writing to the Corinthians. and He's, he's looking into the future with those, those eyes into the future, thinking of that day of resurrection when we stand complete anew in our resurrected bodies. And Paul says these words, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. In the book of James, James says, Those who persevere will receive the crown of life prepared for those who love Him. And now we come to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. John will teach us that clearly this new love, this new motivation of the Christian life, this love of God is a responsive love. John says, we love, now we love, because He first loved us. 1 John 3, verse 1. This is how we know what love is, John says. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. This new love of God, John says, is a responsive love. And secondly, this love for God, John is teaching us now, is involves doing His will. We saw in our text this morning, 1 John 5, 3. This is love for God to obey His commands. Guys, this is a very this this concept here is very tightly interconnected. It's, John is saying that this relationship between delight in the Lord and the desire to please God is so closely interwoven that he can say, "This is love for God to obey His commands." This is love for God to obey His commands. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down these next three points that I made because this is the heart of the sermon today. This is the heart of the moral test of true faith. How can I know for sure that I'm saved? First of all, true love of God, true love of God is a principle of action. True love of God is a principle of action. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, John records these words of our Lord, Whoever has my commandments and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Whoever has my commandments and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. True love of God is a principle of action. We can illustrate this in a hundred ways this morning. Um, Many of you know my wife has been sick. She's trying to recuperate from surgery about three weeks ago. She's not been doing well and really been discouraged because Carla's very active and she likes to be up and going and she just doesn't like staying at home much. And this, this uh, illness has really depressed her a bit. And so I decided that I'd do something special for her to try to encourage her. Some time ago, we were. Uh, she took me to this painting gallery, and, uh, and she, she showed me this painting, this oil painting she really did want. And we decided together that we couldn't afford it at that time. So uh, last week, week before last, I decided on my own that we could afford it. So uh, I slipped out one day, uh, and during lunch, I drove down to this gallery, and I went in and bought that painting, and I decided I was going to surprise Carl with this painting. So I'd already figured all the details out, and I asked the guy, it was a hot hot day, and I said, you know, I've got to keep this thing in the car until tonight till I get home, and 
could we wrap it in something special? Do you have any of that brown paper? Because that would blend in with the carpet in the car and maybe she wouldn't see it because it was Wednesday and Wednesday night of church we ride home together and I didn't want her to see the painting so he wrapped it up real neatly in the, pa in the paper and I put it in the back of the Explorer and held my breath. Wednesday night of church we walked out to the car and she didn't look in the back. She got in and we went home and went in the house. I left it in there, didn't say anything and we went to bed that night. I got up a few minutes early and slipped out to the garage and got the painting out of the garage and I hid it in the storage room and Carla had a doctor's appointment later that morning that Thursdays are off day together and I decided while she's at the doctor I'll make the changes. I know where she wants the painting hung and had it all worked out and she left and I did all the changing around. I put the painting where she wanted it. She came home that day about lunchtime and it brought such great delight to her. She was so excited and so encouraged. Now brothers and sisters, does my wife know that I love her? Yes. I tell her often that I love her. They get the point. Those deeds, my actions, reinforce to Carla a deep felt love. Deeds which please the wife I love. John is teaching that true love of God is a principle of action. Now this point leads right into the next point. In fact, the next point is developed out of this point. If true love of God is a principle of action, then true love of God affects obedience. Affects obedience. That is, it nurtures an obedience. True love of God nurtures an obedience that is continuous. First John 5, 3. This is love for God to obey His commands. Now, if we can reverse this teaching, conversely, John is saying, if you think you love God and you have no desire and make no effort to walk obediently before Him, you are deceiving yourselves. Because true love of God affects obedience. It is an obedience that is continuous. Now, so far we've talked about a love that's action-oriented, that calls us to righteous living, to action. I want to make sure that you understand this this morning because there is this tendency to get out of balance on this issue of love. In fact, there are lots of, several at least, books written on the marriage issue that talk about biblical love. In fact, there's a book that says love is a decision, a very good book. I use it often in counseling. Love is a decision. It's talking about love is action-oriented. It's something that we do. There is a tendency to get out of balance there. In fact, when I counsel in premarital counseling or marriage counseling, one of the fundamental things I start with is an understanding of biblical love. Jimmy does the same thing. And we, sitting with a couple, we help them develop a good definition of biblical love. It goes something like this. Biblical love, true love, is exercising the will to value another. And that, that definition is tended toward action, exercising the will to value another, action-oriented. Now the purpose in, in, in emphasizing that kind of definition is, is because we're out of balance on this thing of love, especially in the marriage issue and relationships. We think love is something that we feel. The sexual act is a demonstration. You know, it's, it's culminated in that. It's, it's something that we feel not just something we feel. It's, it's action-oriented. So our purpose is to bring back the balance of true biblical love. And again, there's always a danger of swinging the pendulum too far this way because now my point here, brothers and sisters, is true love of God is not just action-oriented. 
It must also be heartfelt. I think John Piper says it best in his, his great book, Desiring God. He says, yes, love is more than feelings, but no, love is not less than feelings. So true love of God is action-oriented. It calls us to righteous living, to deeds of action. But it must be nurtured out of a heart that's passionate for God. It must be heartfelt. And this is the test, the moral test of true faith. Now, in the last part here of the sermon, I want to answer two questions that we must have. I hear these questions a lot. In fact, I heard this one question from my own daughter for many, many months. Dad, how can I know for sure? How can I know? My answer to Holly, night after night, was something like this. First of all, we can know, Holly, because the Spirit bears witness within us that we are the children of God. Then that's John's argument. Now, in the doctrinal test of true faith, that was more objective. John would say to us, you can know that you're saved. You can believe. It's objective because, John says, I saw him. I touched him. I sat under his teaching. I knew Jesus. He truly was and is the Son of God. That's objective. But now, these last two arguments, the social, now the moral is more, more subjective. And John is teaching, brothers and sisters, we can know because the Spirit bears witness within us that we are the sons of God. Now, the, the problem that my daughter had, and that maybe some of you have, is that there seems to be a paradoxical teaching, even in 1 John, concerning this issue. This issue of sin and righteousness. Now, John, on one hand, will teach. These are his words. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So John's teaching that we're all sinners. I would teach Holly. Holly, yes, you're a sinner who continue to sin. On the other hand, John says, in this same epistle, no one who lives in him, that is Christ, keeps on sinning. Now, how do you reconcile these two verses? Brother, here's the test. Do you possess an, an habitual disposition toward righteous living? Are your desires to please God, are they constant and continuous? Are they earnest and serious? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you pant, as the psalmist says, like the deer pants for the water brook? How can you know for sure? Do you possess an habitual disposition toward righteous living? Now that's the first question we want to answer. The second question is more practical for us. What is true obedience? If true love of God is an action, a principle of action that calls us to obedient living, what is true obedience? If we took a survey of the congregation this morning and I ask you, what's the first thing, the first few words that come to mind when I ask this question, what is true obedience? Many of you would write down words like responsibility, duty, commands, obedience, rules. And we would answer that way because we define obedience in terms of mechanical performance. The mechanical performance of certain duties. Brother and sisters, do you know that you could 
You could never violate the third commandment. That is, you could never take the Lord's name in vain. As long as you live, never take the Lord's name in vain. You could, you could never violate the fourth commandment. Never do your lawn on Sunday. Be a strict Sabbatarian. Never violate the third and fourth commandment and still be guilty before God. Because obedience, listen, obedience is not only subjection to an external law, Obedience is the surrendering of my will to the authority of another. And I am learning now to delight in that authority. I want to be sure you got that. Obedience is the surrendering of my will to the authority of another, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as a result, I am learning to delight in that authority. I'm further along than many of you in the child-rearing thing. I, I don't have them completely raised. They're college age now. But I, at least I've crossed some bridges some of you are about to cross. So I think I can give you a little bit of counsel. And Carl and I just recently had this discussion about our children. We were looking back. And, you know, we, we think, well, we've done a pretty good job, haven't we? I, I told her the other day, maybe we ought to adopt and do it again. <laughs> that we've learned so much. And surely the next time around we could do even better. And um, Carter's not been feeling well. That didn't go over very good. So uh, Dobson's not an option for us right now. But guys, if, if I could go back, I, I told her that, that this that day. I said, if I could go back and do it over again, I'll tell you something I'd change. I wouldn't emphasize so much the small things like keep your room straight, pick up after yourself. Your mother's not your maid. You know, those, those are good things. They need to hear it builds character in their life. They need that. But I'd spend less time emphasizing those small things, and I would move more toward those principles of life that will affect them from now on. And I'd emphasize things like looking at other men and women and seeing the dignity in them because they're created in the image of God. I would emphasize, and I did these things, but I'd spend more time emphasizing them. I'd emphasize responsibility that we have because I would want my children the purpose of that is to is so that Holly and Brian would grow up and understand that the law of God is good that God honors righteous living that the yoke of Christ is a good place to be I would teach them that this obedient living is the complete subjection of the soul to the blessed yoke of Christ. Jesus called it a yoke. Sounds strange, doesn't it? A yoke. That's why he could stand before the multitudes and look into their hearts. Men and women who were weary, who were tired and weary with a religious game. And Jesus would say, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from it. You will find rest for your souls. So what Jesus had in mind here was the legalism of the Pharisees that made the law of God a burdensome yoke. In fact, legalism produced a religious chaffing. Jesus says, move under my yoke, it's easy. Now, what's the difference? I mean, what, what makes the difference between the law chaffiness and the law bringing delight? See, the, the moral law hasn't changed the same today as it was 
years ago, decades, centuries ago. It hasn't changed. What makes the difference between the law of chaffiness and the law of bringing delight? Well, John would say it's true love of God. See, John understood that the great motivation of the Christian life is not rule-keeping, but love of God. And that too, that love of God is a miracle of grace. So John writes to comfort those who may be falsely afflicted. Those among us who are doubting salvation. But I remind you, he also writes to those of us who may be falsely comforted. There are those who need to be afflicted because they're trusting in something other than the finished work of Christ. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, was writing on the subject of um, the depravity of man. And Lewis said that, referring to human depravity, that there are two kinds of sins. He calls one of them the, the animal self, and the other one he called the diabolical self. And Lewis said that the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That's why Lewis says, a cold, self-righteous prig can attend church every Sunday and be far nearer to hell than a prostitute who never darkens her doors. There are those among us who need to be afflicted. My neighbor across the street, Ron, who lives on the corner across from me, has had um, a huge oak tree in his backyard for many years. In fact, I estimate that tree to be about 25 or 30 years old. And for some time now, I've um, noticed that something's wrong with the tree. It's obvious. Something's wrong with the tree. It's diseased. I told Carla at least a year ago, I said, Carla, if Ron doesn't have that tree taken down, one of these nights that tree is going to fall into his house. It's planted on a, on a sloping hill and already leaning in that direction. There's only one way the tree could go into his house. Last Thursday, a week ago, when the storm came through town, you remember? Ron's tree fell right into the center of his house. Huge tree. Once the tree was down, you could see the problem. See why no pruning would make any difference in this tree. No chemicals, no doctoring made any difference. That tree had to come down because the tree was rotten to the core. Lewis, in another one of his books, I think it's Mere Christianity, was talking about um, paraphrasing the words of our Lord and the Lord teaching about this issue of our own sin nature and the problem that we have. And paraphrasing the words of our Lord, Lewis says this, Jesus speaking now. Jesus said, I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here. I don't want to prune a branch here. I want the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. Then Jesus said this, I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself, and my will will become yours. Does it sound familiar? I will remove your heart of stone. I will replace it with a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. 
Gang, the motivation of the Christian life, true, is true love of God, that comes from a deep, heartfelt passion and love for Him. It's a moving under His Lordship. That's the moral test of true faith. Our Father, I've been thinking about our congregation this week and this sermon. I'm not sure it's accurate, but I came to the conclusion that there are probably three kinds of people in here today. There are those among us who have been falsely afflicted, who need to rest in your promises. They are saved, and they need to know it. I pray that you will give them new, fresh assurance today based upon the promises of your word. Father, there are also those among us who need to be afflicted, who are basing their salvation on something other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. There may be a self-righteous prig here today. I pray, Spirit of God, that you will move in their hearts, woo them and draw them to you. And then I think, Father, there's a third kind of person here today, which includes many of us, who are saved, we're confident of it, and yet we're cold. We're not passionate about truth. We're not passionate in our Christian life. We're not excited about the kingdom of God. I pray, Spirit of God, that you will move among us. Lord, one of the dangers here at Grace Evan is hearing great sermons. We hear lots of great sermons. And Sunday after Sunday, we walk out of here stirred. I pray, Father, that you would change us by your Spirit. And Lord, if your Spirit does not do a work among us, we have wasted our time. We commit the preaching of this truth to you, and we ask you to use it for our edification and the building of the kingdom of God. I pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we, ch we close the same way. It's an invitation this morning, primarily, to those of you who have finished our new members process. Uh, this is an opportunity for me to introduce you to Family of Grace. Uh, we welcome you to come forward. And then uh, I do want to extend this invitation to those of you who need to talk about your salvation. You need someone to sit down with you and take some time with you. We want to do that. We have people here at Grace specifically trained. They're men who feel this is God's calling upon their life to sit down and, and help you. Come see me after the service and I'll introduce you to one of those guys. Now our closing song is printed on the front of your bulletin. It's uh, the Doc's song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Would you stand as we sing together?